The Rappaport Diamond Podcast is brought to you by Rappaport Academy, your e-learning course for successful diamond trading. Welcome to the Rappaport Diamond Podcast, the podcast where real is the standard. Last week, the FTC dropped a bomb on the industry, upending long-held understandings in the diamond and jewelry sector. On this episode, we'll discuss the FTC ruling and some of the possible ramifications that may come of it. Another shock to the industry came with Swatch's announcement that it is pulling out of Baselworld 2019. The announcement followed Baselworld's statement earlier this year that Swatch, along with several other major watch players in the luxury watch industry, had confirmed commitment to the show. The departure is noteworthy, and the team will talk about the viability of Baselworld going forward after this news. And after a relatively upbeat first half, we'll be looking into the crystal ball to see if there's anything to expect coming up in the second half of 2018. Joining me today in the studio is Rappaport's editorial team. Rappaport senior analyst Avi Kravitz has braved the summer sun to be here today. So Avi, what is your favorite part of the summer? As a fair-skinned gingy, I can't say I have a particular uh, affinity for standing outside or, or sitting on the beach um, all day. Uh, and so I'm, I'm more of a winter person, to be honest with you, David. But um, there's something about the summer, the atmosphere is freer, I guess, and I love the water. So it's an opportunity to swim more and sort of enjoy the, the more relaxed atmosphere. There's a vacation feeling about the market as well as the city that we live in. So it's... Um, it's a nice time of year, I guess. Also here, Joshua Friedman, Rappaport's news reporter. Joshua, do you have any summer fun? Living in Israel, I, uh, I think I look forward to the winter as well. When I was uh, growing up in the UK, I used to suffer from a little bit of seasonally affective disorder, also known as SAD. And the late autumn and winter could be... Uh, miserable times when it starts getting dark at three or four or five in the evening and so I used to always look forward to the summer just because I get a little bit more light but uh, as I say now I think I'm looking forward to the winter. And here with us as well is Rappaport's editor-in-chief Sonia Esther Sultani. What is your favorite thing about these warm months? Hi David. Uh, my favorite thing is that I can stuff my face with ice cream <laughs> and it feels like a health recommendation because it's so hot outside. And I'm very grateful, actually, for the heat for that. Uh, I also left London after many years because I was suffering from the, the long winters, the damp nights and the lack of light. So I love summer, even if, if it's, you know, we, we're very lucky here to, with, uh, with our weather. Would they say that uh, summer's the best day of the year in, in London and, <laughs> and winter's well, <laughs> the best day of the year in Tel Aviv? Yeah, I think it's because of uh, climate change. Things have changed in the UK. They it's had been hot this three, week, yeah. three months, yeah. I think, absolutely, absolutely beautiful in, in London. So, You know, and here it's been hot as always. And we're not the only ones feeling the heat because the FTC decision last week seems to have really shaken the industry. We can even see by online news readership that the story that Rappaport broke has attracted more attention in just a few short days than any other this year. But is it going to have a long-lasting impact on the industry? What are your thoughts, Avi? Um, it's a significant story, as uh, as our readers guessed, and it created some confusion in the industry that um, that I think required some clarification. What the ruling does is, and Joshua might be better qualified to go into the technical details of it, but what the new guidelines do 
is that it um, expands the definition of a diamond to include that of um, lab-grown or synthetic diamonds. So when you, when the classic technical definition, when you say a diamond, that refers to the broad spectrum of product out there. Why that brought confusion is because you still need to differentiate the product when you're selling it. And that caused some panic amongst our readers that forced us to, well, not forced us, we needed to issue a trade alert to say that when one is selling a diamond or dealing in in um, synthetic diamonds that you need to qualify the stone as a lab-grown diamond. So that's an interesting thing you just said because you called them synthetic diamonds. And, and Joshua, maybe you can speak to this. I know that there have been a bunch of rule changes around what you can call lab-grown or man-made diamonds. Can you go a little into that for us? I think another part of the confusion was that the FTC... Um, they put out guidelines. My understanding is that it's not law as such, but they put out these guidelines and they they say that certain things are, are not correct. They might say it's unfair or something, uh, but they'll also have certain recommendations. So what they've said is that you essentially must say if you're marketing a lab-grown diamond that it's lab-grown or laboratory-grown or man-made or use another suitable word. But separately to that, they also have certain recommended words, which used to include synthetic, but they've removed the word synthetic from their list of recommended descriptors for lab-grown diamonds. So, for example, if you're a natural diamond company and you want to disparage a lab-grown diamond product, it's no longer one of their recommended descriptors to use to say that it's a synthetic diamond, but they're not saying that it's prohibited. That aspect of it is all a little bit... uh, a little bit theoretical and because there's nothing stopping anyone from saying that a synthetic diamond is a synthetic diamond. So, Sonia, do you think this is going to have an impact on marketing either for natural or for synthetic diamonds or, I suppose, man-made diamonds? I might be wrong, but I think there's no laboratory-grown diamond company that ever called themselves synthetic diamond. I think it was the natural diamond industry that always used that term to make a very clear distinction in um, in the mind of the consumers between a natural stone and a laboratory-grown stone. So I think, as Evian Joshua have said, you know, it's more a matter of making things very clear and very distinct in the mind of the consumers. Now, how are the different producers going to use it to their advantage in terms of, you know, blurring the, the boundaries, playing with words? We'll see, but... I think I don't see the natural diamond industry having to change that terminology for more for more understood. But all the the changes were still definitely uh, there were better news from the for lab grown companies than they were for natural diamond companies because you could see from the 161 page discussion that the FTC published that there were comments that were submitted by synthetic diamond companies such as the Diamond Foundry. And there were also comments submitted by the natural diamond industry, for example, the Diamond Producers Association, which represents natural diamond miners. And the synthetics company won quite a few points. For example, as we said, they got the word synthetic removed from the list of recommended words. But they also, they now have more freedom to use more words than they used to have to describe lab-grown diamonds. So they don't have to use a certain list of words, but they can now use any word that they deem to be clear. And I think what it also does is it um, it continues this trend we've seen in the last um, few months to a year of a mainstreaming of lab-grown diamonds, that there's a wider acceptance of the product. And we saw that with De Beers introducing their line of um, synthetic uh, diamond jewellery light box. 
which is going to be launched in, in September. And so this is another step of removing, even though I agree with, uh, with Sonia and Joshua that it's not going to change the market, but it does loosen the, the acceptance of lab-grown diamonds. I think it was interesting when, when De Beers launched their light or, or unveiled their Lightbox um, program in, at Las Vegas, they asked all these questions. They went through the, what was the five W's of journalism, essentially, you know, what is a diamond? When is a diamond? Where is a diamond? All these questions of how you define what a diamond is and the market's still sort of playing with those questions and, and coming to new conclusions, I think, which is going to take some time to get used to. Well, I just want to circle back to something that Joshua mentioned, which is there were a lot of parties involved in these discussions and a lot of natural diamond companies were there as well. And it seems odd that the synthetics companies seem to walk away with so many points on their side. I guess the question is, who's responsible for representing the natural diamond industry? All the industry organizations. I think it is a bit of a failure on the on the part of the diamond leadership that includes the World Federation of Diamond Bourses and also the Diamond Producers Association, whose role it is, or the DPA's role, is to um, promote natural diamonds as a product. And their slogan, real is rare, and real is rare, real is a diamond, was from the get-go sort of designed to combat the growth of synthetic diamonds. And this is an area where they could really have lobbied the US government to win over their cause. So I think there's, a, there's some salt searching for the natural diamond industry to do in this regard. I think there's something also that is um, beyond the terminology, you know, like we can, we can argue on synthetics, lab-grown, created, cultured, all these things, but I think there's a real threat to the natural diamond industry from lab-grown producers who pass synthetics as real diamonds. We just heard a story today that's been reported to the Israeli police, actually, of um, stones that have been exchanged, five-carat stones, three-carat stones, they're natural diamonds that have been exchanged for synthetics, and it's only been found after the transaction was done. So uh, they had the inscription from the GIA, they had a certificate, for, fake, obviously, fake inscription, fake certificate from the GI that looked exactly like the real thing. So I think there's also a big a bigger picture for the natural diamond industry. There's the real threat is maybe more, you know, in this type of circumstances because we're talking about half million dollar stones. It's not, you know, that's the consumer side of it. You know, how do you educate the consumers? How do you get them to understand the difference between natural and lab grown? But it's also I think as our industry is, is facing more and more fraudsters that are really taking advantage, that it's quite easy actually to inscribe a GI code on, on diamonds and create a fake GI certificate. So, Which highlights why it's so important to maintain that disclosure when describing a diamond or the diamond that, you, that you're selling, that it is lab-grown and not um, just a diamond. And that uh, the simple reference to a diamond is um, in business terms, is uh, is a natural diamond. Yeah, absolutely. And also, there's the, the natural stone is still the most valuable of the two, obviously, because you know, from a half a million dollar stone, you have something that costs a few thousand. So, have you heard about the Rappaport Research Report? If you haven't, then you are missing out on the latest data report from the Rappaport team. Did you know that more than 80% of SI Clarity diamonds in the 50-pointer category listed on RapNet in October 2017 sold within three months? Or that listings of three-carat diamonds jumped 30% on average across all categories in Antwerp this February? With the Rappaport Research Report, 
you can get valuable and actionable data to make smart, savvy investments and start increasing your profit margins. Don't get left behind. Subscribe to the Rappaport Research Report today to get business intelligence for the diamond industry. The other big piece of news that came out recently was Swatch's decision to pull out of Basel World 2019. Now, Baselworld has been steadily declining over the past several years, especially among jewelry manufacturers, but I think that this is the first major watch company to pull out in this uh, sort of spectacular way, and it seems like it's something different. Joshua, what was your take on this piece of news? I think the interesting thing here, which was that Swatch Group, they're one of the largest Swiss watch producers. They own 18 brands, including Omega, Harry Winston, they send, I think, 17 of those 18 brands to Basel World every year. Swatch itself, which is a, a relatively low-cost watch brand, and they have said that they won't be attending Basel World in 2019. And in doing so, they've given a bit of a parting shot at the organizers of Basel World. They've said that the show was failing to keep up to modern business needs. The organizers were more interested in their financial needs, for example, paying off their large new building, which they built five years ago, than they were in serving the consumer's needs. And the result of this is is quite bad for Basel World because uh, really it's an invitation for other exhibitors to say, well, I'm also spending 50 million or 10 million dollars a year setting up a booth at Basel World. There's no reason for me to continue this investment. So Avi, having been to Basel World, do you think that the withdrawal of a major company like Swatch Group is going to have a big impact on the show floor? David, this is a big deal for Basel World, and I think it's a big deal for trade shows in general. Firstly, the Swatch Group was the biggest exhibitor at Basel World, and they're an important exhibitor. And the language that they used um, was very telling. Firstly, they were quite critical of the management, as Joshua um, mentioned. And they also were hinting to the fact that, um, not hinting, they were basically expressing their, that you don't need a trade show, essentially. These are multi-billion dollar companies that are innovating. They're bringing new product to the market all the time and they, they're working with their retail partners on a consistent basis. So the, gone are the days where, where you had this um, big industry gathering. As far as Baselworld goes, we've felt this um, amongst the diamond exhibitors at Baselworld for a number of years. When they built their new building, they changed the layout of the show and they put the diamond exhibitors um, sort of in the back and they, they felt very unloved. It's one of the most expensive shows to exhibit at. Um, so they were paying a lot of money and not getting the or feeling the value that they wanted from the show. Um, and so we've seen a steady... Um, exit amongst the diamond exhibitors from Baselworld over the last few years and a lot of dissatisfaction from them. This is the first time we've seen a major watch company um, leave the show. And it's, it's significant because it's essentially a watch show. You know, you walk into Baselworld and it's just overwhelming. The size of the pavilions, the investment that the watch companies are putting into their, into their booths. You know, it's not a it's not a few meters by a few meters. It's literally, you know, these are stores that they're building in the exhibition hall. Um, so it'll be interesting to see what Swatch does outside of Baselworld. Sonia, do you think that there's any innovations that we might see in the future with big companies pulling out of trade shows? 
Interestingly, this morning I met the chairman of a big Israeli company, Diamond Company, who, from all the news this week, the one that he said was the most interesting was the Swatch Group leaving Baselworld. And he had this idea, so what about 100 or even 50 Israeli companies tell JCK, we want cheaper, we want, you know, we want to be treated better, otherwise we won't come and exhibit. We're talking about Baselworld, but I think a lot of other companies that fed up and tired and think they pay too much for these trade shows. They sometimes charge, you know, absolutely exorbitant amount of money to have a, a placement that they're not always happy with. I think this is going to give them ideas. They think, you know, if the Swatch Group can do it, walk out of Baselworld, we can also walk out maybe of JCK. We can walk out, but Swatch Group is a big, big group as as we know. So I think they will, if they start getting this power together, if they start saying we pay too much, we don't want to pay that anymore, or we don't need you anymore. That's the thing. We can do the trading. We can just fly over and walk on the floor and get the same contacts and the same networking. So I think it's, it's really interesting to see how it's going to affect not just Basel, but also their other big shows. We haven't really seen that kind of collaborative or cooperative negotiation before. I mean, is there something in place? Is there already anything in place that could facilitate that? They're seriously talking about it, yes. Because also we're talking about companies, as Avi said, they don't want to go to Baselworld anymore, the diamond people. They've, you know, they found it was too expensive, no good return on investment, not being treated nicely either by the organizers. And they seem now to say about other shows that actually they, they don't get better treatment and they don't get much more of uh, ROI. So yeah, and at each of the major trade shows, uh, you know, that's JCK Las Vegas, the two Hong Kong shows in particular, the countries um, exhibit in pavilions. So the Israel Diamond Institute will organize the the Israeli pavilion. The Antwerp World Diamond um, Center will do the same for the Belgian companies. The Indians have their pavilion. So they, they do have that negotiation clout, I would, I would imagine, especially since we, we've been seeing um, fewer exhibitors. When we go to the shows, we're looking at the buyer traffic, the visitor traffic, which is really the biggest sign of the success of a show. But we are also seeing um, fewer exhibitors because companies don't see the need to travel from Hong Kong to Basel to JCK to back to Hong Kong, back to Hong Kong again in September to India for all these, uh, you know, there are two or three um, shows in Italy. There's so many other smaller shows in the United States. So there's a limit to how much you, you can invest in these trade fairs. And the world's changing as well. It's a smaller place. People are in touch with each other online. They're selling diamonds online. I'd love to see Swatch do something mirroring what the tech industry does, an Apple-style launch of product where they invite all their retail partners to participate and, uh, and have this really big event that creates a buzz around their product. I think that's what's, um, that's missing in the in- industry, the sort of... Um, energetic excitement that we just don't feel at the trade shows anymore. I think an individual company at the size of Swatch can really bring that to the market. And do you think there's a way to create a collaborative show that might do something similar, that would have a series of smaller companies giving big product announcements? It's called Jam Genève. <laughs> I'm a big fan, obviously. And this, no. po- this podcast was brought to you by <laughs> um, They're always welcome to uh, to sponsor the, the podcast. But even they're not our, our sponsor, but um, I think what they've achieved in their first year was really the proof that 
the industry was actually craving for something else, something dynamic, something you know with value for the for the exhibitors, value for the buyers, and value for the the consumers who were actually coming to the show. So we'll see, we'll see. I think there's just a new jewelry show that just started in New York as well. We saw that a couple of days ago. So maybe that's where we're going to the boutique boutique shows on one hand and maybe like the big groups like the Swatch group that have done very well this year apparently if, if the revenues are to be believed. There's also a, a watch show in Geneva in January which has been taking away some of the That's business true. from um, from Basel. It's quite a small nice high-hand show yeah we, we reported on that on our, on our Drew blog and you know you have the nice brands interesting things but not on the scale, so I think that's maybe where we're moving to. There was also a, a bit of a lesson about uh, looking after your customer in this whole story, because there was, there was a telling line in the report that broke the news about Swatch Group in a Swiss newspaper and that quoted another brand that's not part of Swatch that's in Hall 1, which is the most expensive hall at, uh, at Basel. And they said in the last few years, no one from the fair management has ever come to their booth to say hello uh, in, in, in years. Um, and they're probably spending millions of dollars um, every year on this. I'd be interested to see if that that brand is there next year. Nick Hayek, who's the the CEO of uh, of Swatch, um, said the same thing in an interview on CNBC that uh, he's had to invite the management of Basel World to come and see him. They should be reaching out to their biggest um, tenant, essentially, to understand what they what they expect from the show, what sort of innovation they would like to see at the show, and there just wasn't that engagement. So if they're not giving it to Swatch, they certainly wouldn't be giving it to the you know individual diamond tears that are exhibiting at Basel World. So it's it's a test now for Basel World to respond to it in a, an engaging and innovative and creative way. And they've got a new team in charge and a new managing director of the show as of a few months ago. So um, they claim to have new ideas. So I mean that's a lot of news, and I think the real <laughs> takeaway from to all of with less money. Yes. <laughs> 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 yeah. Uh, what is it? Necessity is the mother of innovation. Yeah, let's see how it works for them. But I think the real takeaway from all of this is that if you want to start a successful jewelry show, do it in Geneva. <laughs> so oh no, treat treat your exhibits as well. Yeah, I think it's absolutely. actually we'll you know we are a consumer based industry. It's all about consumer. It's all about you know relationships. And I think if you can't do that well, it's it's not a good sign. Though, in spite of all the recent spate of somewhat negative stories, this has actually not been such a terrible year for the diamond and jewelry industry. And, you know, with a fairly rosy first half out of the way, I wanted to check in with you guys and see if you had any prognostications around the second half of 2018. Probably not going to hear the word prognostication again. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I'm busy Googling that. <laughs> it will take me the last four months of the year, I think. <laughs> so, so the one non-journalist in the room has uh, stumped the others. <laughs> so, I mean, do you have any uh, predictions for the rest of the year? Well, we're in a, a quieter period for now in terms of the, the trade. So, um, apropos trade shows... Um, I think the wholesale market, the dealer market, um, is really waiting for the Hong Kong show to see how the market is shaping up after the summer period, and uh, particularly in the Far East, because one of the positive uh, things that we've had in 2018 is positive growth in China and Hong Kong, as well as the US. In the last few years, it's been one or the other for some reason. 
But um, this year we've had a, a simultaneous growth story in both markets. And that has been um, thrown into a little bit of doubt in the last uh, few months um, and many tweets as uh, the trade tensions between the US and China have, have escalated and that's affected the, the currency in, in China. So, so we are curious to see how that is going to affect um, consumer demand in both locally in China and um, in terms of tourist uh, spending. Um, because the Chinese tourists are, are a big growth driver in many markets. If you think of a Tiffany store in, in New York, they often talk about the tourists spending at these stores. So that is something that I'm looking at in the coming months um, before the holiday season. Sonia, do you have your eyes on anything for the rest of the year? I'm waiting for more celebrities to get engaged and show off amazing, beautiful diamond rings. That's the fluffy girl in me, but also like uh, the pragmatic girl for the diamond industry. I think it was just a model two weeks ago got engaged, Carly Kloss, with the brother-in-law of Ivanka Trump, if I'm correct in my uh, um, American um, elite genealogy. And But what was interesting is that she has a beautiful diamond ring, natural diamond ring. And I think that's that's interesting that you know there's still token of love, there's still a status, there's still a symbol of status. So I think you know the more people like that who have seven million followers on social media get engaged with a big diamond ring, the better is for our industry, especially in the lead up to the engagement season. And Joshua, what does your eye have on the future of 2018? Uh, well, the beers have said that um, once they've started launching uh, their Lightbox laboratory-grown diamond jewelry on Uh, the Lightbox website, they're going to start uh, potentially um, doing some retail partnerships with some uh, some other retailers. So I think it will be interesting to see who ends up selling De Beers synthetic diamonds, whether it's going to be a, one of the big retailers like Signet or whether it's going to be some of the regional retailers or, or maybe some of the large names in China and Hong Kong. Something to look forward to. And before we go, Sonia, I know that you wanted to talk about the campaign against mercury and gold that we've been supporting? Yes, I think Rappaport has been known for 40 years for taking strong stance, especially on ethical trading, ethical diamonds. And this month in the magazine that's coming, that's just out at the moment, you can also find the article on diamonds.net. It's called Brilliant Timing and it's written by Toby Pomeroy, who's been very active in uh, trying to abolish mercury, the use of mercury in a gold supply chain because it's not just that um, artisanal miners are suffering from that, from the toxic fumes of the mercury that is gold, but it's also all regions. So we're talking about families um, in close to the mines where actually this mercury is used. We're talking about fumes that are damaging to the environment, damaging to the health of the people. I think the responsibility is actually to, to say no. We want to know that our gold hasn't been used, doesn't come from these sources. And I think Toby has been very, very active and he has um, a foundation called mercury3mining.org. So I really would encourage any, everyone to go check his website, read this article. And I think that's where the market is also going, you know, more ethical goods, more ethical jewelry. And I think we, that's why we are very supportive of what he does. So if you're interested about learning more in mercury-free gold, then you should go to mercuryfreemining.org. So thank you very much, Sonia. It was Thanks, a David. It was nice to be back after two months break. Thank you, Avi. It's always a pleasure. Thank you, David. And thanks, Joshua. Very informative. Thank you, David. 
Thank you for listening to the Rappaport Diamond Podcast. If you enjoyed this and are looking for more diamond and jewelry industry news and information, check out diamonds.net, the best news source in the diamond industry. Don't miss this month's issue of Rappaport Magazine, where bridal jewelry is under the microscope. And if you're looking for an edge for your diamond trading business, check out the Rappaport Research Report, business intelligence for the diamond industry. For Avi, Sonia, Joshua, and the whole Rappaport team, thanks for joining us. Mercury3mining.org Maybe you want to just spell that out. It sounded like three. Mercury3mining? Three as in... No, three mining. Three. Three. F-R. Yeah, three. (laughs) (laughs) Maybe I'll ask David. (laughs) Maybe David will read the website. Um, (laughs) Sorry, Sonia. I I don't mean to offend you. (laughs) That's okay. I would never get my TH and my F correctly.